0: Welcome to episode 32 of Ancient Rome Refocused. The title of this podcast is... Thirteen Strings on a Renaissance Lute. This is your host, Rob Kane. All music on the show today are compositions written and performed by Matthew Lee Umbleton. He is a composer, musician, and writer out of Kent, England... Matthew has been on the show before as our traveling lecturer, where he drops in to give us his views on the ancient world, which can include such subjects as ancient Latin, opium in antiquity, and mythology. Today, Matthew is our guest. We drop in on him at an odd time while he is chopping wood. To quote, a popular TV show. Winter is coming.
1: Temperatures plunging across the country. The Met Office issuing warnings for snow and ice. Now, our weather is highly variable, depending on which way the wind is coming from and through the autumn and west. There are many
0: things that can keep you warm. Reciting a saga can keep you warm. Wielding an axe can keep you warm as well. Just recently, Matthew shared with me that a cold spell was coming down from the north. Now you can pay the high fuel costs, or you can reach down deep and do what you have to do. Pick up an axe and do what your ancestors must have done. dane Celt, Saxon, it all comes down to the axe. Matthew is the type of guy that can chop wood while regaling you with a story. I've seen him do it. How Viking is that? He has been described as a composer in widescreen. He writes books on Eric the Red and even has a book about an old French tale of a werewolf. Titles can include Icelandic tales, with stories of Ragnar Lothbrok. Check out his collection on Amazon.com. In the district there lived a woman named Thorbjörg, a seeress who was called the Little Prophetess. He narrates a damn fine telling of the saga of the Greenlanders.
1: Thorvald, now prepared for this journey with thirty companions, they made their ship ready and put to sea. And nothing is told of their journey until they came to Vinland to Leif's camp, where they laid up their ship and settled in for the winter, fishing for their food.
0: I believe there are people that go through life and nothing ever sticks to them. The geography that they live in has no effect on who or what they are. They live from second to second, so blinded by the present that they believe how it is for them is how it always was and how it always will be. No dust of the past sticks to the feet and the geography of where they live does not touch them in any way. They are unaffected by the past because they cannot see the past in their surroundings. They just lack the ability to see. The people I like can read history by the shape of a hill and a depression in a place that should not be. Paleontologists are such a group. They can look down at the ground and see it littered with dinosaur bones, while others see nothing but stones. Archaeologists are such a group. They can see the hidden mosaic floor and where it's laid, in which way the Roman wall must run on the topography of an English field. And Matthew, what of Matthew? Matthew is of another group. He is a musician and composer that sees music and language as part of the same river, he can take delight in the runic alphabet and the feel of ancient Latin upon
1: his observant Sortium consuetudo simplex, Virgam frugi ferrae, arbori decisa minsurculos, amputant eosque notis discretos super candida He plays temerum.
0: the lyre the lute and the flute, and upon request can rap out a call to battle upon the drum. There is geography in what he does, especially for a guy that lives in Kent. Kent is a large swath of land mentioned in the doomsday book, a king's accounting. Of the possessions of William the Conqueror published in 1066. Times change, populations grow. London grows beyond its Roman and medieval walls into the surrounding countryside. It is now a city easily accessible by road and rail from Kent. There's a coastline in Kent, the white cliffs of Dover and there are no shortages of vistas. Names associated with Kent include Charles Dickens and Darwin, Churchill, Chaucer, and even Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Kent. Kent is a geography of past and present. Kent may have castles and medieval towns, but harbors a wired society and has bragging rights to the ninth wonder of the world by the construction of an undersea tunnel that links England with northern France. Matthew Lee Ambleton looks like a Viking. I mean, he does. He really does. He would be the last to say so. He has long blonde hair a rocking chin beard, and a stare that makes you wonder if he's pondering the location of his axe. He is private in nature, but has the look of a guy where it would be fun to hoist a brew at a local pub and talk of the nature of the draft of a Viking longboat and the depths of English rivers. The stare may be frightening to some, But deep down and behind his fierce facade, the guy has a generous nature. Through the miracle of Zoom, I have Matthew Lee Embleton on the line matthew thanks for being on the show thank you
1: very much it's an absolute pleasure to talk to you thank you
0: could you tell us a little bit about yourself
1: yes um i am um, fascinated by music and history and languages and um, the ways in which those three things often sort of um, overlap Uh, i started um, on percussion i think when i was about seven years old Uh, my interest in music really developed from then uh, later, sort of piano and then uh, synthesizers, electronics, and then I kind of got into classical music, and and then kept looking further and further back. So, sort of early music and ancient music, and that's when I started looking at uh, things like the lute and the lyre, and um, all the different sounds that they create, which are very evocative of the ancient world. Or um, that, that, that sort of thing, or the, or the Renaissance or medieval music. I found it all fascinating. And, of course, the, the, the lyrics for the songs, the, the language aspect of it interested me as well. Um, yeah, so history, music, and languages, those are my main interests, I would say. So
0: if I just happened to drop by where you live, would I find a bass guitar leaning up against the wall?
1: Um, I don't have a bass guitar, but I have access to uh, a, a, a guitar um, I've got a mandolin, a lute, uh, the lyre, lots of other strange, interesting instruments, some, some recorders, um, yeah, all, all kinds of stuff, and obviously synthesizers, electronics, all sorts of things like that. So, what does a lyre have that a modern bass guitar doesn't? Interesting. Um, I think uh, the, the, the the number of strings that they're, they're all tuned to a certain mode or scale. So. Um, it, in a way, there's there's no wrong note that you can pluck if you're playing in a certain mode. The 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 figure and the shape of your melody will always always fall on a note that fits within that scale. So it's it, it's actually quite freeing. Whereas now, obviously, plucked instruments, fretted instruments, particularly have uh, uh, they're all sort of intervals. So obviously, you have to know your chords and your notes and your intervals and things like that. But with with a lyre, it's it's very freeing. Uh, yeah, so any note, you, any sort of string you pluck is going to fit with what you're playing. So it's all about the shape and the movement of your melody. And when did
0: you get this interest in historical music? I'm maybe I shouldn't say historical uh, music that you create in an historical mode.
1: Okay. Yes. Um. I think I've yeah, So I mean, the, the films that we watched, what what you might call sword and sandal sort of epics about uh, the ancient world. Um, there's always some interesting sort of musical elements that help to evoke that world. And so listening to it, you think, okay, what, what instruments are that? What What is it that's making, giving it that atmospheric feel? It makes me feel like I'm already there in the scene with these characters. So yeah, th- things like the sort of the harp or the lyre or the kinner or any other, those sort of plucked instruments. Um, it's it's interesting to explore, to for me to sort of see what sounds I can make um, And being very interested in the ancient world, ancient Rome, um, to be able to to, to create something like that myself was something I was very interested in doing. And, of course, that's uh, that's kind of how we, we got started. We got in touch.
0: Footnote. I'm going to step out from the interview for a moment. I came across Matthew's music online. I was particularly impressed with a piece titled Mithras. I asked permission to use it on one of the episodes. Now, if you get a chance to listen to episode 32 titled Mice and Frogs Behaving Badly you can hear a musical interpretation by Matthew of a translation of a comic epic poem called the Machia, which is a parody of the Iliad commonly it's attributed to Homer Now Matthew's composition brings out a visual of a mythological pond of lily pads, moonbeams, and streaming water, of two riverbanks where frogs on one side and mice on the other eye each other as they don their battle armor. Batrocomayomachia is offered as bonus material and is available for download. back and forth, you uh, talked about uh, connections, three connections actually, Uh, music and history, music and languages, and language and history. When you talk about connections, what are you talking about?
1: It's like, um, since since the ancient world, um, music, and the way it's played, um, and the technologies behind the music, it's all sort of gradually evolved. And, and so has the, uh, the language. Um, when you talk about songs or poetry or lyrics, the languages that they are written in all, have also evolved as well. So um, music and language for me, the, I, I feel that they occupy or excite the same part of my brain. So I, I often say like every language has its own music or a musicality or a rhythm. So it's very interesting to, to chart the history of those things, how our language has evolved and how music has evolved from sort of very formal sort of courtly music uh, to to sort of uh, folk music um, the, the, the way they've changed the way some instruments have been sort of made and remade and copied, but with a slight differences, how they've evolved over time um, and all, all of that kind of links together. So what
0: you're saying is music is a language. Is that what you're saying?
1: Absolutely, no. That's totally correct. Absolutely, yeah. It, it is very much a language, um, and there, there, there have been so many different um, changes in music theory, particularly since the Renaissance. Um, things, things like uh, well, d- different types of tunings, different uh, ways of making instruments, and uh, things like equal temperament. About all the, the how the notes are tuned and the intervals in between notes, how all of that was formalized by sort of theoretical research, the the evolution of music is is fascinating.
0: By the way, I got to tell you about this uh, YouTube page uh, by Hildegard von Blinken. I'm very sure that's not a real name, but please check it out. She took the 1993 pop song What is Love by Haddekin and turned this Euro dance number into a medieval song. And, you know, it works. I mean, it really works you can almost imagine it being played at court. You could actually imagine some troubadour playing this piece. I could actually see it being accepted at court. So I got to ask you a question. Uh, If some ancient Roman or Greek heard music today, do you think they'd get into it? Would they accept it? Or do you think it would um, sound like static to them? I bring this up just for something you'd run with. Well, What do you think?
1: Yeah, sure. Um... So I, th- I think, uh, with all of the changes that have happened in music over over such a long time, um, it depends on what type of music they would hear. For example, um, so I mean, classical music, some of that they will be able to sort of relate to. They they probably find a lot more changes and modulations and and strange textures that they wouldn't be used to. Um, so it would be it would be. Maybe some of it as well, so the, the dissonance, uh, the sort of uh, different yeah, the, the different textures to evoke kind of uh, things that sort of clash harmonically to create tension. They might find those a bit strange or they might relate to it and say, OK, this, this is music of the gods. This is this god fighting that god or that they would be able to have that sort of uh, culture of mythology, which they had in their music anyway. And that it would sort of illustrate that in more detail for them, perhaps. I think um, some of it they would be able to relate to because um, because of the yeah the, the way it's evolved, um, but some of it I think they, they would find maybe fascinating or, or terrifying even uh, there'd be so much going on so so intense uh, particularly I mean things like electronic music it would it would sound sort of completely unearthly to them I would imagine um, but also fascinating depending on how it's done depending on what kind of electronic music I mean there, there are some forms of dance music now that are very, very kind of intense and really sort of jarring to, to, to hear to, to someone who's not used to it or doesn't like that kind of music. So that they might find some of that sort of thing terrifying. But some classical music, they would think, okay, I can relate to this. I can, it's it's very full on and lots of chopping and changing, but I can still kind of see how music has changed over that time.
0: Uh, I, I got the strong impression that you like studying languages because I've been totally impressed by how you fall into Latin occasionally, and <laughs> uh, and it's, it's and I I know you like studying languages and and that makes makes me kind of wonder is is do you think a language a language reflects people like is Latin a reflection of the Romans is Greek uh, a reflection of the is the language of the ancient Greeks a reflection of who these people saw themselves or how they saw themselves
1: absolutely yeah and and there's how we see them as well um if we look at the the literature if if we if we read it allow we we're, we're kind of bringing that that language frozen in time we're bringing it back to life and looking at it from our perspective and the the, the feel of it the sound and the rhythm of it um it, i think it gives us an impression uh even on a subconscious level of of who, who these people were and how they spoke and how they expressed their ideas whether it was like, obviously, a lot of Latin literature is quite formal and is in classical Latin, but occasionally you get people like uh, Cicero who would write uh, letters to his friends, and sometimes he'd slip into vulgar Latin, which was the more common everyday spoken Latin. Uh, and so you, you, those sort of differences would give us an idea about what how they spoke formally, how they spoke informally, and, and how they expressed their ideas. Yeah, I, I find all of that absolutely fascinating. Yeah, I love it.
0: This is just an observation, and I would value your opinion on it. It's probably just me, but when I listen to Latin, it seems harsh, hard on the ear. When I listen to ancient Greek, it has a musical quality to it. It's almost like listening to a lyric out of a song. It seems poetic to me. Do you think that a language is a reflection of a people, that the language reflects on who or what they are? And I know I'm reaching on this, but there's this American linguist named Mark Okrand who studied Native American languages. He was hired by the film studios to create a working language for the Klingons in the Star Trek movies. He actually created a Klingon dictionary which gave rise to people conversing in the language. In fact, I saw a version of A Christmas Carol in Klingon, on the west side of Chicago. Now, look, I'm not saying that Latin sounds like Klingon, uh, but when I listen to Greek and Latin, there seems to be a difference. It's something that f- that falls on the ear. Yeah, it's two separate languages, but does it reflect the people that are speaking it?
1: Yeah, I think there is. I think also the, the evolution of Latin, they took a lot of uh, Greek words and Latinized them. They, they, they were fascinated by Greek culture, so they kind of absorbed that. Um, some of them were against it, that, that sort of Hellenization. They wanted to keep something that was uniquely Roman, so they, they tried not to use Greek terms. I think Cato the Elder, I think he was against that sort of um, absorption of Greek culture, as an example. But... Um, and also, I think maybe it depends on, on the Latin that you're hearing and that's being spoken. Could be. uh, there, there, are some, there are some dramas on, on TV now where, the, where they've got sort of people speaking in Latin but with subtitles, and, and they are sort of – they are conquerors, they are armies or that sort of thing. Um, so you've got that sort of that commanding language of a sort of military commander who's got that very uh, sort of pragmatic, but also very very declamatory, like talking to a lot of people, instructional – language whereas if you were if you were talking to or or going to some sort of poetry recital in in some sort of wealthy roman villa the language that you'd hear there would be very different so some of that depends on the context in which you would hear that latin as well but they, uh, they they were very sort of um they were very good at taking things from other cultures around them that they found interesting and and then making it their own and then maybe even making it better making it more roman so they, they weren't afraid to do that. And I think language is, 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 is some of the lots of examples where they've yeah, they're taken Greek words and Latinized them.
0: I'm going to focus in on what you said, where you're hearing it. Uh, as someone that went through basic training, you heard a lot of short sentences. Uh, the, this is all in the nature of take it over there, four letter word. And this is what we're going to do today, four letter word and Take that hill, four-letter word. Yeah, I see your point. I, I guess it all comes down to context. Um, There's a lot of
1: graffiti of that in Pompeii as well, where the, the the graffiti reflects the everyday speech, which is very different from sort of that um, uh, formal kind of Ciceronian Latin. Uh, on the walls is scrawled stuff that's very, very short, very to the point, and, um, yeah, v- very direct and very, like you say, the four-letter words and so on. Yeah.
0: How much is Anglo-Saxon part of modern english
1: so when when most people hear old english what comes to mind is is sort of shakespeare's period but actually um so anglo-saxon is is the very beginning of english um were a group of west germanic tribes i mean after after the western roman empire collapsed let's say or they pulled out of britannia in about around 410 and the last western roman emperor was deposed in 476 a, AD or CE, whichever you prefer. And, and in that time, a lot of West Germanic tribes um, started coming over and they were invited over as sort of mercenaries to protect the Britons against the Picts raiding from the north. Um, and all of those West Germanic tribes who, who came over in greater and greater numbers, they all spoke West, uh, West Germanic dialects. But then as they all sort of mingled together into one language, that, that's the very beginning of English. So yeah, Anglo-Saxon very, very much the the the, the foundation part of, of English.
0: Well, what about the uh, the languages that are spoken in the uh, Nordic countries? Uh, is the is the average language in Norway or Iceland uh, uh, par- have parts of it that are very much like the old Viking language?
1: Very much so. In fact, I think the the closest uh, linguistically to to Old Norse would be Icelandic. Um, because of a lot of the the movements of people, and some some people took uh, slaves or servants from markets in in like uh, Dublin, for example. So with that sort of population coming from Ireland, you get a slight sort of Celtic influence in with the Old Norse, but Icelandic is is still I think the closest. Um, and the, the, I think I read somewhere that uh, the Norwegians seem to be the best. At being able to understand all of the other sister languages from the other Scandinavian nations like Swedish and Danish and obviously Icelandic as well um, because they have so many different regional dialects um, and you can sort of almost pinpoint where somebody's from because of the way they say a sentence. The, the, the tiniest sort of variations in words or accent, or whatever, they can pin, still pinpoint where people are from. So, yeah, you, and the old Norse, the the, the common words, uh, take like a, a, a simple word would look pretty much the same in all of them. Some of the vowels might look slightly different. The one have might have an a, or one might have an o, or with a line through it, or umlauts, or whatever. But the, the overall word you, you'd be able to recognize it in all of the main languages today because they they all share that common Old Norse root.
0: I interviewed a, uh, a lecturer in Greek history, and she is a uh, a Greek speaker. Is her first language? But she she was raised in the United States. She had Greek family, and she and she her family was fortunate enough to let to teach her Greek, and she spoke Greek at home. But she became a Greek lecturer at a university in New York. And I asked her the question. I said, um, "Okay, uh, was it an advantage to you to be a Greek speaker and to say and then suddenly go in and start studying ancient Greek?" And she said, "A great advantage." Okay. so she 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 said that she could um, make guesses of what they were getting at and what they were implying by by comparing modern Greek to ancient Greek and and such. And uh, she she had no problem. Uh, She says, I I, I was a lot faster than the other students
1: in the classes, Um, which I thought was interesting. So it Reminds me of something, actually. Um, What's that? Uh, uh, in, in Old English or Anglo-Saxon, the, the epic poem Beowulf, uh, I remember discussing this with some people on, online, and uh, somebody who spoke perhaps a Scandinavian language said that they were able to understand Beowulf in the original Old English uh, on a kind of a subconscious level, because um the, the Scandinavian languages, they're all North Germanic, and English, and you know, started out as a West Germanic. So between that North and West, you still got that Germanic root. And and yeah, this this person who spoke a Scandinavian language had that extra kind of sideways sort of hearing, and was able to pick up a lot more of it, such like subconsciously. Wow. Mm.
0: Uh,
1: okay, I'm giving you a chance to
0: talk about your favorite historical epoch and take us any direction you want i will name four and uh you can uh, decide which is your favorite here or what you would you would, no excuse me i'm going to name three uh okay. the, the, the roman empire the viking age the renaissance
1: oh, that's a very difficult choice or to add your own yeah um so i mean the roman empire that's uh, wow, where, and where would you start? And, and you, what, what, uh, what part of the Roman Empire and at what time as well? That's, that's what comes to mind straight away. Um, that would be interesting to see what it, what it would be like there at the time. What was the mood in everyday people? Did they feel that they were part of something great or was, did nothing really change for them? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it reminds me of that book you very kindly sent me about uh, the, the woman who's sort of transported back into ancient Rome uh, but because no one knows like where she's from. She speaks Latin, but no one knows where she's from, so people assume that she's a slave or a servant. I had to Google the title of the book.
0: A.D. 62, Pompeii. It is written by Rebecca East. Now forgive me, I like books on time travel, and if you could throw an ancient Rome into the mix, I am hooked. This is a lovely book. It's almost like a fairy tale in the way it was written. Now a 21st century woman takes part in jumping back into time and gets stranded in ancient Pompeii before the eruption. She is sold into slavery and we get to peek into the upstairs and downstairs life of this ancient household. I think what makes this story so fascinating is we get to see how she survives What does she have that would make her valuable in such a household? Well, she knows the volcano is going to erupt, but that's not enough. She has to convince the family that she has the power of prophecy. What's more, she has to have something that the family values. In an age, before the printing press, in a pre-electronic age, She carries with her a 21st century knowledge of literature. We have all heard fairy tales of some sort, Dickersonian tales, Jane Austen novels, uh, Shakespearean plot lines, told and retold in various forms. Even if it's just a TV episode, we have all been exposed to a variety of stories over our lifetimes. Miranda is a walking storyteller of plot lines that have yet to be heard by any audience in that world. It's a great story.
1: Um, also, the, the Viking Age, um, that's another interesting time because obviously, if you were, if you were a monk uh, living on a monastery in, in northern England, you probably wouldn't, you, know, you wouldn't want to go back to the Viking Age as that. Would you want to go back as a, as, as a Norseman um going on going on those raids uh you might find it incredibly exciting it might be very violent or very risky as well setting out to sea you don't know if you'd come back or not it's um because uh yeah going to sea was still very dangerous so it was incredibly brave that they did that and then all the things that they found i'll tell you what would be interesting uh the 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 first uh norse discovery of north america that that really sort of uh the more i looked into it that, that's held more and more fascination with me later on the idea of going making it that far and um, and and sort of what did they see and how did that feel and as news of that filtered back in the in the icelandic sagas and people became aware of these new lands what did they how did that how did that feel to know that there was more to the world than people had previously thought that that's interesting but what i like about the idea of the renaissance is that um, obviously after the Western Roman Empire collapsed, uh, the last emperor was deposed, the Eastern Roman Empire continued as Byzantium or Byzantine Empire or Eastern Roman Empire. And they preserved a lot of that culture and a lot of texts, but then their language shifted over to Greek because of the geography of where they were. But then when that was finally, um, let's say uh, the Ottoman Empire finally brought about the collapse of the Byzantine Empire, suddenly you had this rush of, Um, intellectuals and teachers and professors and artists all coming back to Italy to continue teaching and this sudden resurgence of all this classical learning which had previously not necessarily been available to them um, because it, it maybe went against what the church thought they should be learning about
0: footnote I just remembered something that I found in a book you see I keep journals and write down any cool stuff that I might come across about the ancient world This includes quotes and tidbits of information. I am terrible at remembering things at the time an interview is taking place, but I did find something that might just address what Matthew was talking about. I believe this is a quote from the Benedictine monk, Notker, the Stammerer. Anybody that has the descriptive, the Stammerer, is okay in my book. He lived at the Abbey of St. Gall. He was a poet and a scholar. Now let's see if I can make out my own writing. Here we go. Two Celtic monks arrived on the Frankish coast. They yelled out in the marketplace, Wisdom for sale! King Charlemagne sent for the monks. He demanded, What do you charge for wisdom? They replied that they came to instruct people in the ways of God and seek no remuneration, but only a suitable place for us to focus, for us to teach in, with talented minds to train. Charlemagne hired them. That's it. Let's go
1: back to the interview. Um, An art for art's sake. the the revival of art for art's sake and suddenly relearning all of these old lost stories and the the magic of them and putting those into art. I think maybe the the Renaissance would be maybe the safest, but also the most fascinating period to go back to because of all of that resurgence and rediscovery of all these different sort of stories and science and art. That would would be pretty interesting. Do you have any
0: projects you want to tell us about?
1: Uh, I've been working on my translations of old Icelandic tales And as well as that, I've also been working on a second volume of translations of Anglo-Saxon poetry, which I hope to have uh, published next year.
0: Matthew, thanks for being on the show. You have a good evening. It's
1: exciting to be a part
0: of it. Great. Thank you. Folks, if you want to check out Matthew's work, you can go to his website at matthewleambleton.co.uk. Matthew will be back on the show as a guest lecturer for future episodes of Ancient Row Refocused. Uh, Two musical pieces of his will be offered as bonus material on the website. Uh, One is titled Snake Style K-Minor, and the other is Spanish Voyage Ambience of Renaissance Spain. All are available for download. All ambient music on episode 32 was Matthew's work. You can get his music at Spotify, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, and Apple. See you next time on Ancient Rome Refocused.